When Dr. Jason Evans joined the faculty at Florida's Stetson University as executive director of the university's Institute for Water and Environmental Resilience, he brought with him a kill-what-you-eat mentality. That is, he understood how critical it would be to secure funding through NSF grants and other sources to grow his program and fund the type of research opportunities he wanted to give his students. A few years on, and the institute, IWER as it's known, is sending dozens of undergraduate students out into surrounding Florida communities to conduct a wide variety of water monitoring projects related to water quality and climate resilience. Not only are these projects preparing the young researchers for future studies and employment, they're also, in many cases, filling problematic data gaps, providing actionable information where no data or sketchy so-called anecdata existed. The students' research is helping municipalities prepare for the realities of a rapidly changing environment, including issues around sea level rise and storm surge. It also speaks volumes about IWER's success and supports the never-ending quest for funding to nourish the program. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager with In-Situ. And I'm Brock Houston, Coastal Application Development Manager at In-Situ. And our guests today are Dr. Jason Evans and Andrew Joseph from Stetson University in DeLand, Florida. Jason is Executive Director at the University's Institute for Water and Environmental Resilience, and Andrew is the Lab Manager at the Institute. Jason is also an Associate Professor of Environmental Science and Studies. And they're here with us today to talk about their program, their student research projects related to coastal water quality and climate adaptation, and the success they've had in securing grants to fund their projects. So Jason and Andrew, welcome to Aquapod. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yep, thank you so much for having us. You bet. So let me kick things off here with you, Jason. Uh, maybe you can just start by describing uh, the university a little bit and your department in particular. Okay, uh, well, Stetson University is a small undergraduate institution, or at least at least primarily undergraduate institution. We have about 2,500 undergraduate students here in DeLand. We have a few graduate programs as well. We have a law school that's over on the west coast of Florida, about 1,000 students in the law program. In our program, the Institute for Water and Environmental uh, Resilience, uh, which we like to call IWER because it's really difficult to say the entire uh, uh, the entire name. So IWER was founded in 2015, and the idea was to try to bring the university's research and outreach out into the community. And so, and so in particular, um, with science uh, related to water and we also added on the resilience side with climate adaptation because, of course, that's such a big issue here in Florida. And so what we do is we do a lot of research projects. We work a lot with local governments. We work a lot with local communities. And we get our students engaged within that applied research. And so the idea is we're trying to bring ourselves out to the community. And so, yeah, so it sounds like the benefits of that are on both sides, both for the students and for the community. Is that a, a an original model? Is that something that's done widely? Or is there, are there reasons why it's been particularly successful in your region? So, so the model is kind of tried and true. Uh, and there are, I guess, quite a bit of universities that have that kind of engagement 
uh, with uh, some kind of environmental program. Where I think we have a niche here is because of the issues within this region, within uh, within Central Florida, which um, is kind of uniquely blessed with water resources. So we have, uh, for example, we have all kinds of springs. We have freshwater springs. We have estuaries. We have lakes. Just an abundance of fresh water. And also uh, we've got the saltwater resources. And because we're also so fast growing in this region, we have uh, the Orlando area, a lot of population growth, a lot of development that there's a lot of challenges with the water here as well. So, um, so that kind of gives us the opportunity, uh, of course, for studying of the water resources and, um, and then, of course, the opportunity to get our students involved. And so what's nice about Stetson with an undergraduate institution is that we're small. And then so the undergraduates work very directly with the professors. So unlike you might have at like a research university, big, you know, big research universities where um, yeah, your classes might have 400 students in them. Right? We don't have that at we don't have that here. So um, so we have our students working very closely with us. So when we do research, we engage the students very directly within that research. Well, that's what we heard about, you know, that, that you're doing just a, a wide range of projects or the students are getting an opportunity to do a wide range of projects. And in some cases, they're using in situ equipment to um, do the, the water monitoring component of the work. Um, I think this would be a good place for us to just step right into what some of these projects are. And then I want to come back to, you know, the funding and how you're able to keep this engine moving. So um, maybe Brock, I'll turn it over to you and we can talk a little bit about the research itself. Yeah. So Jason, you mentioned, um, obviously Florida is flush with water resources throughout the state. A big part of IWAR is getting students into projects that, that study some of the challenges with population growth and how it affects water resources. Can you uh, talk about some of the projects that your students are working on that examine some of these challenges? Sure. So we have some projects right at our laboratory. So uh, within the St. John's River, um, we have uh, some water monitoring projects and Andrew is out, what, every couple of weeks or so, or at least before the hurricanes, I think he was going out every couple of weeks with our students to go and collect uh, mostly nitrogen and phosphorus data. Uh, we use the SANS uh, um, as, part, um, as part of that monitoring. Um, we have a stormwater pond that's right here on our site. And so we also have that outfitted uh, with, uh, with water level gauges and with a sond and we're doing water quality sampling there. We've got projects over on the coast. So we work with city of Cape Canaveral quite a bit. And so we've got three water level gauges out there at city of Cape Canaveral. We've got one at satellite beach as well. Um, and we have one over in Edgewater. So we've got kind of the northern edge of the Indian River Lagoon, which is which is a pretty imperiled water body, uh, highly, highly, um, highly diverse, highly productive, incredibly important for this region, but it's had a lot of challenges. And so we've got five stations that we're that we're working with out there. Um, 
And I'll kind of let Andrew talk more about how the students are involved. And he's the one that really sets up the equipment. I'm the one that kind of dreams up a big idea. And then, and, and then Andrew is the one that actually does the stuff. So yeah, he knows a lot more about what's, what's happening hands on kind of day to day. So Andrew, I'm going to turn it over to you if you don't mind. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So. Like Jason was saying, we have a lot of students that we're fortunate enough to be excited that they want to come out, get some hands-on experience, get into the field. And so we are striving to kind of provide this experience for them. Um, I, in addition to being a lab manager, I'm also kind of like an adjunct teacher and I teach the environmental science methods and practice lab. And so in this lab, we kind of for a water quality lab, we give them some experience with our water quality songs from in situ and other equipment. And some of these students um, express interest and want to help out even further, learn more, get more experience, go into the field. And so this leads to, um, we also offer an internship course here at Stetson for class credits. And so in the internship course, we do several more weeks of field work. Uh, which might be going out into the lake, going out into rivers, collecting water quality samples, also measuring for various uh, nitrogen and phosphorus samples. And then in addition to the internship course in Iowa, we also have research assistants. So these are the like the best of the best. They're really ambitious and we actually pay them to come help out with our various projects, such as like our stormwater pond monitoring, such as setting up tidal gauges in Cape Canaveral and Satellite Beach, uh, going out into the field in the lake and rivers. And so, yeah, so just wanted to kind of throw that out there that there's kind of, there's three different uh, ways of opportunities to get students involved. And then uh, for those that are starting out like as a freshman and a sophomore and they get more experience with the in-situ equipment, uh, we also have this uh, milestone or goal at Stetson University where as a senior, they have to complete a senior research project. And so some of our assistants and interns are actually using the in-situ equipment for their senior research capstone project. Um, so that's just another way to uh, kind of get them out there in the field. How many students are in the program? So that's a really good question. So. Within our environmental sciences department, I want to say we have about 50 majors right now, but we've also got, we also interface with a couple other programs. We've got the biology department, especially the aquatic, uh, the aquatic and marine biology. Um, I think that program, do you know how many students are in that, Andrew, in aquatic and marine? Oof. Yeah, I'm not sure, but we have a lot of students that are. Yeah, I want to say maybe 30 or 40, and then, and then we work with the chemistry program as well sometimes and so um and so i'd say probably within kind of the programs that are within our orbit about a hundred students or so would be about right that's great and the, you guys are a strictly undergrad program at iowa correct so your research assistants are all undergraduate students Yes, that's right. That's right. We we work a little bit with the law school sometimes, and we've had some projects where um, we've had some of the law students involved, but um, we haven't yet figured out a way to get them involved with any of the water quality monitoring, which I think we should. You know, I think that's what every environmental lawyer needs to do is to figure out 
you know, what's going on with the science. But so that that's kind of more aspirational right now. But yes, as of right now, the students that work with us directly, all of them are in fact undergraduates. Yeah, that's really interesting that you, you mentioned that because, uh, you know, uh, environmental law is uh, increasingly becoming important, not just in Florida, but also out West where there's lots of uh, issues with water rights and things like that. So um, that's really cool. You guys are talking about and, and aspiring to work more with the law school to, uh, to push that program. I think that'd be really cool and really beneficial for the state of Florida um, as well as just uh, other regions as well. So you have these uh, students who they want, they come in, they need to do either a research project for their student, for their senior project, or, um, you know, you have RAs who are working on existing projects. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, for the most part. So we'll, so, so we have our, our kind of existing uh, body of work that we have. And so we'll plug students in. When they get to the senior capstone projects for the really, really good students, then we'll even work with them a little bit. They might come up with their own ideas to say they might want to go monitor, say, a stormwater pond in Volusia County or something that's not within our like very direct, you know, not within our, you know, grant funded projects necessarily even. And so if they're really, really good students, then we'll, you know, we'll work with them and we'll really try to accommodate them and you give them the resources that they need for doing that work. But yeah, I'd say the tried and true model is that we have, uh, we've got our body of projects. We try to plug the students in um, to some component of them. And so some students are interested in, you know, looking at uh, looking at water quality and how that might relate to say chlorophyll A or, um, or, you know, so, so we kind of work with the interests of the students and try to plug them in. And uh, how do they typically choose their projects? Is it something they've heard about in class? Is it, you know, something that's, uh, you know, they grew up in a certain area of Florida and they want to study more about the Indian River Lagoon because they grew up there or something like how, how do they typically choose their projects? So we actually just went through this with our, students that are in so this is the spring semester and these would be our third year students and so what they're doing right now is they're is they're actually trying to uh, develop and figure out what they're going to do for their senior research and so what we do is we have like a round robin of each of our professors we'll go into that class and we'll present here's what we're doing here's here's a whole list and so and so it's not just Iowa uh, within our department. So we have, uh, we've got a uh, sustainable food systems is also within our department. We have some other, uh, so with environmental science, it's a big, you know, we have a whole bunch of different things that students could do. But so, yeah, so all, so all of us go in, you know, each, each of the professors goes in and we kind of present, here's what we're working on right now. And so it's kind of like a menu for the students and then they'll reach out and say if they're interested in working with us and then if they are then we'll you know try to plug them into something and then occasionally again they'll have a student that's like i'm really interested in this and it could be that you know say with like the indian river lagoon that if you have a student who you know just um, is from that area wants to study it and they're very very interested and um and they have an idea and they have a good question then then we'll you know, we can also try to bend to work with them as well. So 
for each student, it's very, very individualized, even though we have our projects that 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 it's really up to the students to kind of figure out, you know, where they want to plug in. So I just want to clarify these projects that you have in progress. Do you come up with a project and then go get funding or does somebody come to you and say, hey, we have funding if you want to do this project? What is that origin? How does that develop? It's a little bit of both. So we we do uh, we do go out and we'll we'll apply for like competitive grants and so uh, Florida Sea Grant uh, with NOAA so we we've been very successful with Sea Grant with a lot of climate resilience work and so looking at sea level rise looking at flood risk and doing a geospatial modeling which is which is what I often do. Um, we, let's see, with National Science Foundation with Cape Canaveral, uh, we've got a project. I'm actually working on that grant right now, um, for the stage two of that. We have a stage one grant that we're, that we're now working with the city of Cape Canaveral. It's more of a planning grant. And then we're working on the stage two, which would be to actually implement, um, uh, a, a project there, which, which has to do with green infrastructure, with green stormwater infrastructure, with, and the, Oh, the way they work with rain gardens and bioswales. And, um, but we also will get, sometimes we'll have um, uh, organizations and local governments will have a project or they'll have something that they need done and they'll come to us and say, you know, are, are you interested in doing this work? And so we've got, so we have a relationships with a few local governments uh, with uh, the Regional Planning Council, the East Central Florida Regional Planning Council, we work with them a lot. And so they'll oftentimes have a grant themselves and then they'll have some kind of body of work that's associated with that. And then they'll come to us and ask us for assistance. And so, um, so yeah, it, it kind of runs the gamut. And we also have some donors that will sometimes just give us some money, some alums and say, here you go and go do good things with it. And so though, though that, that's even the best kind of money is that um, where, you know, that we get to go do kind of whatever we want. And then, um, and then within the, within the mission, you know, so, and so what, what we'll, uh, what we'll do is, um, yeah, so like a lot of the laboratory functioning, a lot of the maintenance um, uh, will, use kind of donor funds and we'll use uh, some university funds to help with that. I should mention that we outfitted the lab originally and the way that Andrew came to us was through the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. And so we got a really nice grant through the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations um, to really upstart and kind of uh, outfit the laboratory. And so that's how we bought our first kind of slug of uh, equipment um, from you all actually within C2. So so uh, we brought on Andrew and hired him. And uh, and then as we were looking for sons, you know, like here's what we want. And Andrew, you know, went around, looked around and and then found that you all had some great deals uh, for, uh, for uh, the kinds of uses that we were looking for, the educational usage. And so that, that's why we went with you all. Yeah, the academic educational discount was a huge <laughs> that came in handy. bonus. Yeah, so we could buy in bulk, so we can get many students in the classroom or an internship using the equipment at once. So when you say in bulk, like how many, how much equipment do you have available for the students to use? Uh, I think we have four water quality songs at the moment with various different sensors that we can 
switch in and out. So uh, yeah, it just depends on what we're measuring and what we're doing. That's great. And I think we've got what, like eight or nine uh, 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 water level gauges. Yeah, we got a lot of water level gauges. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of water level gauges. That it, it, we just ordered another SON too, didn't we? Yep. Through, through Sierra, National yep. Science Foundation. So is that yeah. our fifth or is that our fourth? Uh, this is the, it would be a fifth one. Okay. It's a yeah. different, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Level, right. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. Aqua Troll 600, this one's the 500. Okay. So. Cool. <laughs> um, so can you guys, uh, highlight a couple of the, uh, interesting projects you guys are doing where, where you're looking at water quality and water level at a couple, couple different locations? I think the most interesting, at least for me, and I'll go ahead and I'll talk about this one, and I'm sure Andrew has some other has some other ideas as well. Um, but with um, looking at storm surge with the recent hurricanes that we had here in Florida, and so I always kind of preface this that I, you know, we don't like having hurricanes because you know they're very destructive. Um, we fortunately had out. Um, uh, some water level gauges over on the coast and they all survived. Um, so they both went through Ian and they went through, what was the other storm? Hurricane Nicole. And so we got um, some really interesting data from uh, from the space coast. And so we've got, uh, we've got the level, uh, uh, level trolls up at uh, the city of Cape Canaveral. We've got three of them there. And then we've got the one at Satellite Beach was about 20 miles to the south with the second storm with uh, Hurricane Nicole, we uh, recorded something that I guess coastal engineers had thought would happen there for years um, with, uh, 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 with the storm surge of that type, where um, at uh, the city of Cape Canaveral, because uh, the wind was coming from the Northeast, uh, the water level went down uh, while the storm was happening. And it was because uh, the wind was blowing it away uh, from, uh, from the city of Cape Canaveral. But then at Satellite Beach, as I was watching the gauge during the storm, and at Satellite Beach, I was shocked because the water level went up, even though it was on the eastern side of uh, the lagoon. So using the same principle that we had at Cape Canaveral, like, why is this going up? And apparently... There were already coastal engineers from that area and scientists had already thought that would happen, but no one had ever demonstrated that it would happen. It's because there's a little pinch at the bottom of that lagoon and the water gets, um, it gets piled up there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I showed it to a bunch of people because I was just puzzled. I was very puzzled. I put it up on LinkedIn. I put the graph up there. I'm like, I'm puzzled by this. And then, um, and then I talked to, uh, a retired coastal geologist who lives in the city of Satellite Beach uh, used to work with the Air Force. There, John Fergus is named Dr. John Fergus, and he was so excited. So he's like, "We thought that this that this would happen, but no one's ever demonstrated it before. Now we've got the data to show that this is how this is going to behave." And it's really important because when thinking about flood risk within that area, um, that you know, the, like these kinds of details are really, really important. And now we have, you know, pretty much incontrovertible evidence because we, because we, 
we have it from the gauge. We have it from the gauge that shows absolutely we had uh, the storm surge that happened uh, there at Satellite Beach. And in fact, I'm looking at it here as well during Hurricane Ian of the storm surge they had at Satellite Beach was considerably higher than it was at the city of Cape Canaveral for that storm as well. Um, and so that kind of helps us think about, you know, local planning and uh, for the city of Satellite Beach, we work with a lot. They're very appreciative to have this level of data that now it helps them understand. And they've already kind of seen this just through their own experience. But, but you know, ANIC data is never as good <laughs> as actual data, you know. So, so we have actual data that is immediately helpful for, you know, floodplain managers, emergency management officials, for hydrologists. And that's, you know, only having these gauges in the water for, you know, six to eight months. And we're already learning things about, about that really, really important area of the world. That's great. You know, you, you're a... Uh, you know, you put those sensors in the water and you're able to collect this data that, like you said, everybody swore that's what would happen, but nobody had the real data to back it up. So clearly there's not, you know, some baseline monitoring going on. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's right. How do you, how common is that around, you know, southern, central and eastern Florida, the whole state of Florida, really, that you work in? Yeah, well, I could talk about the Banana River uh for the next hour and a half, but, um, but with, uh, the banana river. So I've worked there a lot and, and in particular, uh, thinking about, uh, water levels and thinking about sea level rise. And it turns out there just isn't a lot of good data for the banana river. And so in trying to understand how it behaves, we know it's not tidal that it's, that it's, you know, it's so far away from inlets. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't even really have a good handle on what is like the, like the mean water level now, you know, what, what is the mean water level? And, and so when I learned that, you know, talking to folks that work in the area, like we kind of guess and, you know, I'm like, that seemed, you know, just so to say it, you know, when we're there on the space coast and we're watching rockets blast up and then come back and land, you know, SpaceX is amazing. Seeing that, I'm like, okay, we can do that, but we don't know, like, right next to what the water level is, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, and so, you know, for putting a, you know, for putting a sensor, which is relatively inexpensive to go out and put it out and, you know, and, and of course, we need to maintain it and we need to have it out there for a while to get, you know, to kind of get that behavior, but it just seems like it seems like low hanging fruit to me to you know to do that and then i know our friends with the city of cape canaveral when um you know we'd already been working with them and then we you know i just decided I'm like you know we want to understand what's going on over there so let's go ahead and use the funding we got through the arthur vining davis foundations to start up the lab and we've got the level troll 700 and, you know, and I think that's the most expensive one that you guys have, the most advanced one. But, you know, I'm like, you know, for for something as important as understanding the water level over there, right next to uh, where we're launching rockets, I'm like, you know, let's go ahead and put that in there. And it's, uh, and, and, you know, we're getting great data. And then, and then the city of Cape Canaveral is incredibly appreciative because, uh, you know, we have two that are, that are on the river, uh, of the lagoon. And then we have one that's up, uh, they have a stormwater ditch as well. So we went and put one up in there. And, um, 
And so with that site, you know, they've been very interested what happens when it rains really heavily. And the, and and so we and so we have captured that behavior as well. And so, um, you know, within a few months and they, and they've had some big rainfall events and not even just the hurricanes. They had they they had a pretty severe stormwater flooding event that we were able to capture uh, with uh, with uh, the sand or uh, with the gauge, uh, with the water level gauge. And so, um, and so uh, we've had interest from other communities now. You know, City of Cocoa Beach right next door. They're uh, they want to have one out there, and so we're working with them. And and so within that area where there's been kind of this knowledge gap, or at least data gap, that uh, now that folks, you know, that we've got we've got the hydro view, and you know, we can, you know, I can show people, you know, here's what it's like as of 15 minutes ago, or you know, an hour ago, uh, that that that. Uh, it's really compelling, you know. It's really compelling, and then uh, with water level gauge, I always a joke that you know water levels, they're not rocket science. You know, the rocket science. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> rocket scientists over there in the Space Coast, but you know that it's, um, but it's important. You know, and you want that data. There's a lot of data, and then it does interact with weather. And we do think, actually, we know that the sea's rising, and so to have a baseline now, and then. You know, and you know, even if we're starting now to try to document that within that lagoon is incredibly important. So it's baseline data because that was my next question: is what is the next step that those cities will take with that data? So they and so it's very useful in terms of grants, you know, writing grants, and then as they're looking for funding to do projects because they they have issues with stormwater, they have issues with sea level rise. And they want to do projects, and I'm, you know, and again, it's not rocket science. But if you have data, and then you, uh, that gives you an edge up in terms of you know demonstrating your problem where it, you know, and and thinking about what kind of designs that you want to do, you know, more like resilient designs for stormwater systems, and then and um, so. It's really so there are some basic like science questions, you know, how do these things behave and and um, and how does wind interact with with the water levels in the banana river? Uh, how does rainfall interact? So those are all kind of basic questions that that if we have this data, then we can start making sense of all of that. But but also like how do we design, you know, how do we design our next level of infrastructure that um you know, a lot of coastal a lot of coastal infrastructure in Florida is just imperiled. That the, a lot of the stuff was built, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago or more. And and then the engineers of the day weren't thinking about sea level rise. They weren't thinking about water quality. And so uh, this stuff is already starting to fall apart in a lot of areas. And even it and even was not falling apart that it's not functioning the way that it was supposed to function. And so there's this big need to go in and invest. And then, and then when we do that, then there's opportunities for also integrating things like, you know, cleaning up the stormwater. Uh, but again, all these things with the engineers, you want to have the best information possible because if we're going to do the best designs, you know, we want to know, again, I always go back to somewhere like the Banana River. If we don't know what, what the mean water level is right now, you know, we don't have great data on that. You know, we're guessing, you know, we can make good guesses, but, you know, like why guess when you can have actual data? Yeah, it's kind of that, uh, you know, data begets data, right? Like, yeah. Or w when you start 
putting in a station and, and a monitoring program and you collect that baseline data, you, you start finding out where certain knowledge gaps are, you know, before that, the, the, you know, the whole, the whole system is a, is a gap, right? Cause you don't know anything right. about it. You just know what you can see, you know, if there's a, a sunshine, sunshine flooding or something like that. And that's right. you can guess why or why that's happening or where it's coming from. But until you have the real data to show, uh, you know, what the real process is, it's hard to make the case that yes, we need to invest in infrastructure over here or, you know, start, uh, you know, investing over there or something like that. It's a, it's really interesting how baseline data can really, uh, show you what you don't know, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cause I've even been asked a few times when, when we were like first putting out the water level gauges, someone asked me like, what's your question? You know, what's your hypothesis? And then, and, and my kind of flip answer is I'm like, what is the level of the river? You know, what it, what is just the basic, it's not, it's not a hypothesis or it's not, you know, it's just like basic question of like, you know, what is the baseline? Like how, like what is the state of this thing? And then from there, then they'll, then once you have that data, the other questions will undoubtedly start emerging that you'll start probing that data. Um, but yeah, I'm one of those scientists. I'm like, yeah, sometimes you just collect data for the sake of collecting data. <laughs> you just, and it's something like water level in particular that it's just, it's so, you know, we have all these tide gauges, you know, that NOAA puts out and, and why it's, you know, like for shipping and, you know, like understanding that behavior has all kinds of, you know, there's kind of economic importance to that. It's not just the environmental questions. And so, um, yeah, so I'm a big fan of baseline. So my next question w was, uh, I did want to, ask you a few questions, Andrew. Um, sure. So you are the, uh, you're the person who works directly with the students in getting the station set up, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I work with uh, research assistants and interns uh, with help in getting the equipment out there. So can you talk about some of the challenges that you guys have encountered when do it when setting up these stations and, uh, you know, tackling these projects? Anything from funding to, uh, you know, mosquitoes <laughs> out there. Anything. Yeah, so one of, one of the biggest uh, problems we always run into when trying to install a water level gauge or a tidal gauge is kind of the installing the well that the, the gauge will get in. Um, we always have issues trying to really getting that PVC pipe stuck in there. Um, uh, we, we're, we're never like, Something we found out is that if you have a hose with water and you stick it down into the pipe, uh, the PVC pipe will really go down into the ground much quicker than just hammering it in because of that extra pressure with the water, right? So we've, we've had many students out there trying to hammer it in and we've, we've quickly found out that using a hose is, is the best way to do it. And, and then also, we, we also know that when we're out in the field, the, techno the technology is great. It's just technology is great, but out in the field, sometimes just the uh, connectivity doesn't work with my with my phone or something. And uh, we're trying to like uh, the best scenario is we deploy our well next to a dock, but sometimes we can't. There's no dock. Sometimes you just have to go out into the kind of into the stormwater pond or into the Banana River, kind of a little bit farther out. Uh, Specifically, so yeah, we got to get dirty. We got to get wet. So uh, <laughs> there's always those uh, 
tough, tough scenarios, but we have a bunch of eager students that want to get out there uh, and they're super excited. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I sure do remember being an undergrad and even a grad student and, and being excited to get into the mud and out into the field. So I can imagine, you know, even it seems daunting, but you have some pretty willing help there, I'm sure. Yeah, the, they love it out there, especially along the coast. They like going to Edgewater, Florida. Um, we often see like turtles and dolphins. So yeah. they just they love getting out there into the field. And um, also yeah. in, in the lake, too, they just uh, just a lot of fun out there. Yeah. Here in Florida, a dolphin or a gator sighting can make the whole day, even if it's not a <laughs> not a very fun day in the field. So, Andrew, can you talk about a uh, interesting projects where you guys went out into the field and, and just any interesting stories you might have? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so we do do monthly data collections out in the lake and Lake Beersford and the St. Johns Rivers, but I'm also plugged into a lot of various senior research projects. Um, so actually two years ago, we did some uh, we deployed a water quality sond in, I think, one or two stormwater ponds in a big HOA here um, to kind of investigate the impact that littoral plantings would have on nutrient levels in the stormwater pond. So, um, and then two years later, we had a different student that was kind of interested in the same uh, uh, kind of project idea. And so getting out there was interesting. And for the second student this year, or I guess technically it was last fall, she went out there before Hurricane Ian, after Hurricane Ian, and then additionally after Hurricane Nicole passed over. And so it was kind of interesting because when we first went out there, it was just a typical environment. We were kind of measuring uh, the stormwater pond with no, with no plants inside it or no, no littoral plants around it. But then when we went out uh, after Hurricane Ian, everything was flooded. There was uh, plants that were far away from the edge of the pond, rushing out inside the pond. So it kind of, in our perspective, kind of looked like there was littoral plants in the pond and um, perhaps there may have been affecting the water quality in there as well. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of getting out into uh, the area where we initially measured, took our measurements, we had to like put on waders and stuff and get, get just get more dirty, right? Because it was more flooded. And then, and then a month later, oh, the water levels are going down and it's getting clear. But then Hurricane Nicole came. And so we had the same kind of response. Um, uh, it got flooded again. And so we had to, uh, uh, it wasn't, um, we were trying to measure like over the course of several months, how it would change. And the hurricanes really disrupted that kind of baseline measurement study, but it is what it is. So uh, uh, I think actually Jason is working with her right now, but <laughs> uh, sometimes- you know, I just talked with Jenna this afternoon. Yeah, yeah that, Sometimes yeah. it <laughs> just doesn't work out and you just have to go with it, right? <laughs> well, sure, now you have, you have some information on how how a hurricane can affect a, a pond like that. Yeah. And you have to move them back to back, so you got to, to understand how that works. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. I think it'd be great if we deployed a sound out there continuously for three months and then we could have really yeah. captured that. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's where continuous yeah. data really, really yeah. uh, shines for something like that. You get the before, after, then another before and after, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what, uh, uh, what type of 
data are you are they collecting in these ponds, um, water quality wise? So water quality wise, the the standard pH, dissolved oxygen, salinity, conductivity, chlorophyll A, and then additionally we take discrete samples and and balls bring them back to our lab and we use a uh, discrete nutrient analyzer to measure for uh, nitrate, phosphate, ammonia, total cogeldol nitrogen, and total phosphorus. So sure. that's pretty much our standard. That's what our lab is equipped to measure and it provides good experience for students because you get out into the field using the instruments, but then also you get back into the lab and you learn how to use the analyzers, you, know, you learn how to make chemical reagents to measure these various analytes. So stormwater ponds are a really interesting phenomenon here within, uh, within central Florida. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. And then, and then we, we have a pretty good idea that a lot of them are not working the way that, that they're supposed to work or that, or that we actually presume that they work, especially for nitrogen loading. But we need more data to understand how this works. And then as we're trying to update our stormwater rules within the state, again, data, and then how we manage these ponds, we do think, I still do think the way we manage the ponds could make a really big difference um, uh, with nitrogen in particular. But again, we need long-term longitudinal data to kind of show this and then and, and then to come up with the practices that are um, are going to help, and then, and the only way that we can really do this is these things be big studies. So we're studying you know three or four or five at a time. You know, I like to think big. We should, you know, here in Volusia County, I think the county has like five hundred ponds. We should be monitoring at least fifty of them, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and like you know, really studying them and understanding how they're working, and you know, and then collecting this data and and then comparing different management strategies, and and then and then we could you know then that could give us. Uh, the power that we need to start, you know, making, you know, some inferences. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean for the students, for the students and their professional prospects, frankly, to be doing this kind of work, to have this kind of access? Yeah, obviously I think it's really, really excellent for, for training, for one, if they go on to graduate school, going through, through the research enterprise mm -hmm. that, Instead of if you're going on, say, for like a master's that, um, you know, you've kind of gone through a trial run of research and that you understand what the research prospect looks like and, you know, have just more of an idea. And so I think it's great training for graduate school. And then within uh, the professional world that you consulting companies and with environmental agencies, having that real world field experience is 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 just invaluable that that uh and so you know having to work through the problem solving of being in the field mm -hmm. you know and then so like being a field science or yeah so doing field science always you have to have ingenuity and then you learn that you know and you read in the book how it's supposed to work you know and it may <laughs> uh, but then you but 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 it might not and then you have to come up with you know, you have to think on the fly and come up with ingenious ways. And then I really think, and, and actually I know this, I know that employers are looking for those types of people that they can think through. And, and you know, there's a lot of environmental consulting firms. There's a lot of agency work uh, that needs to be done. 
And, and so, um, you know, I like to think that our students have an edge up because, because of that experience, you know, they have that experience and they, and so someone asked, you know, what is a sonde, you know, and right. they, you know, <laughs> like I've worked with one, you know, and then, and then, you know, and they've, and they've grappled with one and they've uh, looked at the data and they've, you know, seen how it connects up to their phone. And, you know, and so that I think is really invaluable. Andrew, do you want to pick up on that from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So I definitely agree with everything Jason has I said on that, um, getting field work experience and running into all these challenges is super beneficial, I believe, to the students. And then I can provide some numbers with our specific research assistants because I've had to write recommendations for those that want to go to grad school or are trying to get jobs with environmental consulting companies. So last semester, we had a student that was a research assistant. She actually worked she was also an intern at the Riverside Conservancy, where we also have one of our title gauges out there. But she did a lot of research um, studying the water quality uh, there along the lagoon and helping with their shoreline restoration projects. But anyways, she got all this experience and um, she is now successfully working with an uh, environmental consulting company kind of one or two hours south from here. And so um, she just graduated last fall. So um, I think that's this experience is was hugely beneficial for her. And in addition, a year or a year ago, I had we had two other research assistants that um, uh, also went on to grad school. Uh, one is now at FAU um, doing some type of marine studies over there. And then another, another student went on to Brown. Uh, she was a chem major and uh, yeah, they both uh, were reaching out to me, uh, telling me that it was super helpful and they learned a lot of stuff and asking for recommendations and they were both phenomenal students. So, How does the program and the student success, how does that affect the university itself? That's a great question. And so with our program here with, with IWER, that, that the university very specifically invested in our program um, with, I think, the intention of making it a, one of like the pillars of excellence within the university, one of the real distinctive things within the university, within the higher education landscape, you know, that it's very competitive, you know, decreasing amounts of students of college age. It's a hard field. It, and, and so a lot of students like to go into it. And, you know, I get students will come to me and say, you know, why do you want to be an environmental scientist? And they're like, well, I like to work outdoors. I'm like, that's great. But <laughs> Math and writing and skills, you know, that like, and then, and then hard, 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 hard work because, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that like to work outdoors. Um, and, and then a lot of people, you know, want to work with dolphins and, you know, and, uh, and so, and there, and, and those jobs are, you know, they're hard to get. You know, some of them are hard to get. And then, um, and I also, like within our little field, uh, you know, within the within the climate adaptation world and within stormwater, which is where a lot of where I end up working, there's huge demand. Um, and matter of fact, there's shortages, I think, of stormwater engineers. And so and so uh, and so those fields where there's huge demand, huge problems and, you know, you need to do math. 
And I always try to tell my students, don't be scared of math, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so when I went to University of Florida for my PhD, and so I did environmental engineering as that was my, uh, that was my area of concentration. So I'm not an engineer, but I, but I always like to joke that I went to the same classes as these engineers. <laughs> And I got A's, and then a lot of the engineers now who make way more than me, they got C's, and they're like, C's make degrees. I like to think, like for Stetson, that we're able to provide that high-touch experience for mm -hmm. students to where, you know, if you're at a bigger institution, if you're struggling and you've got 500 students that are in a class, it might be difficult. But here, you know, if you kind of know the professors, the students know the professors, and we know the students, that you know, students are making an effort and they're struggling that we can provide them with resources to you know, help them through. And so um, the big challenges with water and with sustainability that um, as we're kind of helping, we're part of the constellation of trying to come up with you know, interventions and, you know, trying to come up with ideas for dealing with these really big problems that you know, that's a, that's a good place, I think, for us to be, you know, and we should be like thought leaders and being engaged in that way. And again, if our students are engaged in that, then it really prepares them for that, for that next level. You know, when they get out in the world that they're like, okay, they learned all the good stuff from the books, you know, you learn the theory, all that's important as well. But then those applications to where you make that link and having that experience is incredibly important. Yeah. yeah. Well, for the students and for the university, and especially for a smaller university, it must feel great when one of those grants comes in. It does. As a matter of fact, I'm working on the National Science Foundation right now, and so I'm looking at you know I'm looking again at some of this uh, some of this uh, uh, level troll data that I'm be putting into my own spreadsheets. You know, later this afternoon. You know, once we're done. <laughs> you know, for a successful National Science Foundation application. <laughs> yeah, and it's because you say the program's been in place since 2015. Is that what you said? That's right, this yep. Is, and, and so it sounds like you've built a lot of relationships and made a lot of headway in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, I think we have. I think we've, yeah, I think we've been pretty successful. So we actually just had our first executive director. He... He was back here. When was it? Last week, Andrew. Uh, uh, Clay Henderson. He was the uh, he was the first executive director for the program, um, and he started in 2015. Um, and you know, he helped kind of get us off and running. And then and then and then with a lot of contributions from other faculty. Uh, and um, and then I became uh, the executive director in 2019, in August 2019. And, and so, um, yeah, so we've just had a lot of projects and then, and then I'm actually from uh, this area, I'm from central Florida. And so I was at university of Georgia for about four and a half years before I came, uh, before I came to Stetson. And, um, and so with my position at the university of Georgia, I did, um, it was a soft money position. <laughs> uh, so I, so I, I got really good at figuring out how to get grants because they used to say there, you have to kill what you eat. <laughs> um, that was the, that, that was the motto. And so, and so, so uh, having that kind of momentum when I came to Stetson and then kind of brought that here and then kind of working with other faculty colleagues and, and, uh, and uh, we've been, yeah, we've been successful with, 
you know, with the grant writing and, and then uh, the grants office here has been incredibly supportive of us. And so we, we've had a lot of institutional support to, you know, keep the program going and, you know, working through the growing pains and, um, uh, 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 We've got our facility here, uh, which is uh, the Sandra Stetson Aquatic Center. So we got a really nice gift actually from Sandra Stetson, who was, is the great granddaughter of John B. Stetson, who is the hat maker, who is the namesake of Stetson University. Okay. So, uh, and so, and so that gift was also very, very important for, you know, helping us, you know, establish the program and you know, getting the institute off the ground. And so, so all that's been, you know, we, we've had a lot of things that have kind of gone our way to, you know, get us to where we are. And looking forward, what do you see in the future for the program sort of dream scenario? I mean, obviously, you're going to be plenty busy because of, you know, the world we live in, right? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, we we really, you know, we really hope to um, put in this grant with National Science Foundation with Cape Canaveral. So we, of course, hope that's successful. And, and then, um, and, you know, continuing to build the partnerships, uh, here within the region. And we are interested as well in doing and maybe getting some international type work. Um, so I'm getting ready to go to Venice, Italy in what, 10 days. So I'm actually teaching a class that's about, nice. that's about Venice right now. That's cool. Uh, and then, so we're going to Venice um, through what's called the Rinker Scholars Program here at Stetson. So we've got a cohort of uh, 13 students that we're going to bring to Venice, and we're going to go and we're going to go look at uh, the floodworks in Venice. We're going to go look at uh, some marsh restoration projects they have going on in Venice. We're going to look at their sewage treatment plant, which is not you know, part of your typical uh, you know, tourist uh, uh, the expedition, um, and we're going to look at. Of course, a bunch of the history in Venice and a lot of the historic sites. Uh, so I'm actually co-teaching with a history professor, and and so hoping that's a springboard for you know doing some more work internationally through the institute. And Andrew, I'd like to hear from you just a little bit about your journey and um, you know what advice you might have for some who might be interested in in looking at this as a career. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I got. Uh, my undergrad degree in biology and marine science at the University of Georgia. So I was also at the University of Georgia. And then I got my master's in oceanography uh, at the University of Delaware. So, and then I've worked in environmental consulting and in industry as well. So I've kind of always had hands-on experience in the field and um, kind of working, trying to uh, study and better the environment. So, and I love like getting data, analyzing water samples and stuff like that. So any, I would say for any student that's out there that likes kind of a mix of like being in the field, the lab and the office, like uh, this is, uh, I'd say your ideal job. And <laughs> I hope that there's plenty of uh, opportunities out there for that. Um, and I just wanted to speak a little bit about kind of the growth of Iowa. When I first came here in August, 2020, we had maybe one or two research assistants. Then in 2021, they kind of blew up to like four or five. 2022, we had like eight, nine, 10, and then now we have eight, nine, 10 again. So I think that the word is spreading. It's popular. People are getting more interested in the, in the Institute and what they're involved with, uh, what we're doing. And so 
yeah, I just think it's a great opportunity and and it shows. That's great. That's some great growth you guys are having, you know, going from when you say one or two and 2020 when you showed up to mm-hmm. eight or 10 RAs now. That's that's awesome. Yep, yep. Yeah, I hope the university keeps, uh, you know, continues to invest in, and the program continues to grow. I, I see this becoming extremely important for Central and Eastern Florida and hopefully for the whole state and beyond. As you said, getting into more international projects um you guys are doing some really cool work and and providing invaluable experience for students who in a lot of other programs might not get this type of experience or that type of expertise uh you know training them so it's mm-hmm. it's really cool you guys are doing all that clearly we're facing some urgency around some of the things that you've been investigating so what does it mean for, you know, where we are? What does university research mean? What's the effect of having that research? It's a great question. So um, especially, you know, being a private university to where you know, we can just ask the questions independently, objectively, and um, how to put this in a way to not get myself in trouble. <laughs> uh, one of uh, the missions we have with the Water Institute here at Stetson with IWER is to be an honest broker. We actually have it as part of our um, as part of our goals to where we can kind of convene. You know, we can convene uh, folks from say environmental advocacy groups, from from state agencies, policymakers, developers. Bring everybody at the table and, you know, let's say I don't, you know, as a scientist and then as an educator, my job again is to follow the science and then to teach, you know, the next generation how to do science. And then I have my opinions, but my opinions are kind of irrelevant, right? It's, you know, that we're, you know, we're bringing data to to the big problems that we have. Um, and then, you know, and then how can that be part of the conversation um, as we're trying to you know, stumble our way through all the problems that we have, uh, and then science doesn't have all the answers, but it you know has a lot. It brings a lot of data to help us grapple with you know big decisions that we have to make. And I think if we don't use the data to make those decisions, you know that is one opinion I do have. I'm like that's probably a big mistake. Right? <laughs> that, that if you're not if you're not going to use data when you have data available, if you're just going to you know, base it on you know, witchcraft or, you know, just like how you feel or whatever. I'm like, okay, yeah, you can make decisions that way, but I doubt it's going to work out very well in the long run. You might get lucky a couple of times, but you know, that, but, but your data, I do think helps inform and that can help you, you know, and you make a decision, use data to, oh, you know, did, you know, did, um, was that the right decision or how can we adjust and, you know, using data to kind of, you know, adapt how we act, you know, I, that, so those are all the ways that I think an institute like ours and others that you know are working in the same sphere are very very important for just you know our whole society. Great. All right. Well, Dr. Jason Evans, Andrew Joseph, thank you so much for joining us on Aquapod today. It's been a terrific conversation. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here today. Is a is a great conversation. Yes. Well, thank you as well. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Helen and Brock, for having us. It's been great. 
You bet. We'll stay in touch. This is Aquapod, brought to you by Insitu. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. Aquapod is produced by Helen Taylor and Brock Houston, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and I25 Productions. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. Until then, take care out there.